Hello, I'm Cassie Gillespie, and you're listening to Welcome to the Field, a podcast for child welfare workers, caregivers, and community partners. Being in foster care is difficult for many reasons, but one big reason is the stigma that comes along with being in care. Today, your host, Kate Cunningham, speaks with two young adults about their experiences and the challenges they faced with stigma while they were in foster care. These two amazing young people also chat with Kate about some of the tips they'd like to offer caregivers and workers to help combat the stigma. Happy listening. Thank you, Cassie. This is Kate, and I am sitting here with two lovely young women, Jalen and Ashley, and I'm going to let you each introduce yourselves. I am Ashley Martell. I spent three years in foster care in my later ages, and then I ended up aging out. Um, But I also had my earliest um, experience in foster care at the age of four. Thank you, Ashley. Um, I'm Jalen Van Vossen. I was taken into custody when I was 13 years old, and then I was adopted when I was 18. Well, thank you both so much. We're here today to to talk to Jalen and Ashley about um, some kind of common misperceptions about being in foster care and some experiences and ideas that um, may help for carers and DCF workers to support youth who may end up in foster care. As we start, what might be some common misperceptions that you've heard or um, that have come up for you when when people find out that you've been in foster care? Um, I think what's like I think the funniest thing is I remember in school in high school, it's like people would find out that I was in foster care because I wasn't really scared to like talk about it. It's a big part of my life. Um, I've had a lot of people ask me what I did to get in foster care, and I just think it's really funny that like that's their understanding of what's going on. Yeah, assuming it was your fault that that you were in there. Yeah. Yeah. I think the most common thing I really experienced was just kind of being grouped in the same category as other foster kids and kind of being pushed to circulate in the same social circles and kind of being, like, singled out on, like, we'd get asked questions on, like, history and they'd ask you about your life, um, And if there was anything in history that you could relate to and they would automatically just like point to me because I was somebody who had like a triggering past um, that could go back to trauma. Yeah. So there were a lot of assumptions, it sounds like, that were made. We were talking earlier, I know, so I'm going to, if it's okay to bring this back up, that you two had a common experience together in school, I think it was. Yeah, so me and Ashley actually know each other from high school. In French class, our teacher rearranged the seating chart so we could sit next to each other. And what she told me the reason was for is she's like, she's new. She's new. You you, you were new this year. You'll you'll get along. Make her feel welcome. And then I later found out in that class, in that same very class, that we were both in foster care. Yeah, it wasn't even like the first day of school. I had started halfway through a semester and... The first person the French teacher introduced me to was Jalen, and she put me right next to her and just assumed that we would hit it off and become friends. I mean, um, she wasn't wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bold assumption. <laughs> you, you became friends for different reasons than, than just that shared experience. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. What went through your head when, when that happened? What was going on? I think the first thing that I thought was, is this woman crazy? Like, why would she put me with the only other foster kid in the room and not, like, 
allow me to figure out who in this classroom I could get along with. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at first I was rooted out because, I mean, that was like, I don't know. I was like really nervous about my foster family and like telling people. I didn't know how it would make people feel because some of the reaction I had gotten was like not the greatest and like, you know, asking me what I did. And so I just didn't feel like explaining everything all the time. And so when I mentioned like, I don't call my, I didn't call them mom and dad. I was just like my foster parents. So I'd, I was a little nervous, but then she was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, I kind of like explained it to you. I was, I was just kind of like, you know. I explained why I was coming in halfway through the semester, and I was like, yeah, I'm here with my foster parents. I just was placed with them, and I'm not—like, I wasn't using my last name. I was using their last name in the school system. So I was, like, kind of explaining that to her. Um, yeah, and it kind of went from there with, like, other people's assumptions on—I, like, guess we fed into the stigma of all foster kids kind of stick together— well, I mean, there's the the assumption that all foster kids stick together. And also, there's also the part where, like, when you're a foster kid, you're kind of alone. So whenever it, it's a little nice to to find somebody that you can relate to and connect with like that, because there's not many people who can who you can talk to about about their past like that without judgment or like without even them realizing they're judging you because they just simply don't understand. And it's just like some of the comments come off as like super judgmental even though they're not meaning it as a judgmental comment they'll be like well what happened to you after they find out you didn't do anything wrong they're like well why are you in care and sometimes you just don't want to tell people it's nobody's business but your own it's kind of inappropriate the amount of times that people ask me to explain like my past tell me about tell me about your trauma no thank you i'm good or they expect like in-depth details i was very open about being in foster care and I never really hit it um but when people would ask me to like go in detail I was like that's a step too far you can ask me about like some of my experiences in foster care but not asking me to give you every detail of why I'm in care or details of like my personal life yeah when you think back to that um and just even thinking for any advice that you might give community members, teachers, um, caregivers in DCF, what would make it more seamless, I guess? I'm not even sure. I don't know how to respond to that because, I mean, whereas our, our teacher was definitely out of line when she, like, sat us next to each other and, like, said, I think you'll get along just because we're both in foster care. I'm also very grateful for that because, like, Ashley helped me through a very hard time in my my life and especially during, like, being in foster care. And I'm very grateful to have known her, to, to have been introduced to her, and to have been friends with her. So I, I don't know, I don't know how to respond to that because I mean, there's like two sides of that coin where it's like extremely inappropriate, but like also ended up being a really good experience. I feel like they need to understand, like coming from someone who, like af even after being in foster care, I understand trauma, um, and. Like, I have a background in trauma now, and I have an education in trauma. Um, they need, like, we need more education in what it means to be trauma-informed and how to go about that. Because we definitely wouldn't have been put in that situation if our teacher was really informed on how her putting us together could possibly create this really traumatic situation where we're both, like, feeding off of the situations we've come from. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's another risk. Exactly, like it's very typical for traumatized people to just create more trauma and 
<laughs> just not do very great with each other. Yeah. So you, you two really got lucky. It was just that sense of you get along and I've witnessed you um, and your banter and, and your, your relationship. And it's, it is truly a very um, mutually respectful and fun relationship that you do seem to have. Yeah, I have, but I have met foster kids that I just do not get along with. And if d- by chance one of them were to have been assigned a seat next to me just because we were both in foster care, I it would have been a bad experience for the whole class because it's just it's it's not it's not good to make the assumption. And when we we talk about um, some of this is really trying to kind of debunk like myths, right, about being in foster care and talk about how to to best support youth who do end up in foster care. What works really well in a foster home or a situation to feel like you have that that sense of belonging and that you kind of found a place that felt like home? I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think I really had that experience. I, As I said before, um, I aged out of the system, and I never really found, like, that one placement that worked for me. Um, I think Jalen could probably speak to this more than I could. Yeah, my adoptive mother is works. She works very hard to to be in tra- trauma informed because she's now adopted me and my little brother, and has been a foster parent for five years. Um, and she cares a lot. So she's she's tried really hard to really understand what I've been going through and where I'm coming from and why some of the things I do that like even I don't understand. <laughs> um, I'm I've only been with her for two years so I'm just trying to think of some some instances where I felt like really at home I mean it's just like kind of those moments you like always wish you had with your parents like every I'm in college now so I'm not I'm not home anymore but every night when she was making dinner nearly every night I would go and sit at the counter and we would talk while she made dinner and just like you know that that was our time to like catch up together and it was I don't know that was just a nice routine and experience to just be able to connect with somebody after a long day and like have a safe person because I know a lot of kids in foster care don't have that safe person so I was like I'm I've, I'm very lucky with the outcome of my experience because a lot of teenagers really just don't don't get that yeah is there anything you would let a DCF worker know um, for the situation of either placement or having that relationship with you that would support you feeling feeling heard and and listened to. I think a lot of DCF workers really put all of their eggs in one basket when it comes to a foster kid. I know they try their hardest, but they also believe that every placement might be your last, even though you're telling them like, hey, this isn't working out. They believe that some part of you is going to make it work. Yeah, I mean, that's just not reality, especially for teenagers. And it's I, don't, I feel like there needs to be more thought involved with placements. When I was first taken into custody um, and still in my emergency placement, my social worker sat down with me and actually created a list, like my personality list, like things I like, things I dislike, what I was like, what I like to do, and sent that out with the placement email. And it's funny because that's how I've been with my mom. My mom is my adoptive mother, but I was placed with her before, and then I moved out for two years and was back with her. So the first time I was with her, I, I was her first foster kid. And the reason she decided to even take a 13-year-old, she was planning on doing, like, 10-year-olds. So the reason she even decided to take a 13-year-old was because she read what we had written and decided I was a really good fit for their family. So I think there needs to be, like, more of that. It also just helps the kid, too, because it's, like, you know, like, it's 
it helps the kid find a place where they're going to fit in and like something that may will last a little bit longer. I think it's also really important to understand that the process of becoming a foster parent isn't really that extensive. And I've met so many people who have become foster parents that really just shouldn't be foster parents because they don't have the right, like they don't meet the right criteria, I guess. Um, And we need to look a little bit more into like why people want to be foster parents before we give them the foster license. Yeah, I don't think a lot of foster parents even realize what they're getting into either. Like there's the unqualified foster parents and then the process not being as extensive as it should should be and definitely not as trauma-informing as it should be. And then there's also the foster parents who go in and they're like, oh, I'm just going to like take care of this kid whose family can't and, you know, like help them. But being a foster parent is really hard. Foster kids are difficult. We have trauma and it's not just like we're not just like any other kid. You can't just like take us and like treat us like your own kid because we're not. We have a history that doesn't involve you and that requires (laughs) a different point of view and a different approach. Yeah. And when you think back again, what or just thinking now, what would be really important for foster parents to know before even getting into involved in this process? Everything you do takes a toll on our lives. Um, I have situations where I was put in a foster placement and was I was told that this was my pre-adoptive placement. I got really attached and then they realized kind of what they had signed up for and said, listen, we're not ready for this. And that took a really emotional, like, toll on me because I had invested so much time and, like, effort into integrating myself into their family just to hear them say, like, hey, sorry, but you're not going to be with us for much longer. And that really kind of destroys a person. Yeah, it's hard to feel they weren't ready, right? And I've heard you say, Ashley, a couple of times and. Um, that there seemed to be a lot of responsibility on you to make this situation work. Again, what would you, how would, what would you want foster parents or DCF workers to know, kind of given that lens? I feel like it's kind of this thing that every foster, every child in foster care goes through this, like, feeling of, I need to do this because I clearly did something wrong before. And we have this, like, stigma upon ourselves that makes us feel like we are the reason we're in foster care. Um, So DCF workers and, like, foster parents really need to understand that we already have this stigma. And if you feed into that, like, feeling of wrongdoing, that's going to stick with us for a really long time. And it took years of therapy for me to realize that nothing I did was wrong in that situation and I never did anything to make it not work. It was just, like, timing. And knowing now that some of these foster parents that had put in their time now have other foster kids they're adopting, um, it's all situational. And you really need to look into, like, are these foster parents wanting a teenager? Are they wanting a youth? Are they wanting somebody who's an infant? These are things that aren't really looked at. They're kind of like, hey, you want a kid, you're going to get ages one month to 19. Because sometimes we have youth that are still in, in care after 18. 
Yeah. So so really, like what I'm hearing is just really be be aware of what you are stepping into. Be knowledgeable, and I've heard you both say the trauma-informed, right? Understand how trauma affects youth. Yeah, and I think just, I think every foster kid wants, they want that placement to be their last placement. So they try, but like, it's really not in our control, and it has nothing to do with us. But when it fails, it feels like it was, exactly like Ashley was saying. Like, it, even though there is, there's no indication that what we did was wrong, it's... Just when that when another failed family happens, it it takes a toll, which is why it's it's so damaging and harmful for kids to be bounced around from house to house because it kids need normalcy and kids need parents. Yeah, and to depend on the adults, right, in their life. And and the adults are responsible for for the youth. I know, uh, Jalen, we've talked about your worker in particular, um, and what you just said about kind of writing down your your list of of who you were um, sounds like that was very supportive. Um, what in particular did you work or do that was helpful and supportive and kind of helped you get through? Yeah, I got very lucky with a really good social worker, um, like starting from, she was actually there the night that I was taken into custody. She came to get me. Um, and then she, you know, was like, okay, let's talk about yourself. Let's get, you know, like the actual you out there. So people will be more inclined to like actually want to get to know you and, you know, take care of you. And I had her for four years and I saw her all the time. We got so close that I ended up getting her personal number and personal Facebook and we would, we would talk all the time and we still do. And I still, you know, she's still a very important person in my life, even though I'm not in custody anymore. And she just made the time to do the monthly check-ins to connect with me about how I was feeling in my placements and just act like actually figure out how I felt and what I wanted rather than letting the system just kind of take yeah, me. The part of, of what workers do um, when kids are in custody is a monthly, we call them face-to-faces where they actually have to take the time and, and meet with youth. Um, what would be helpful for workers to be asking and, and talking about well, it's, it's, the monthly check-ins are meant to check in. They're meant to check in with you to see if, if you're doing okay, if you're, if you like your placement, if you're happy, if it's a good fit for you, regardless. Like, they, they also meet with the parents, and it, but, like, it's really important to meet with the kids to make sure that what everything, everybody's saying across board is the same and to keep kids out of harmful, potentially harmful situations and just clarifying, making sure that like what their parents are, what the foster parents are saying is accurate, is what is happening and what they actually want. I think those one month meetings really need to be put into effect. Um, I know I didn't really have those. Um, I had a the same foster foster care worker for my entire DCF stay during my teenage years. And she had at one point told me that she had forgotten about me and where she had put me in a placement um, after multiple people had tried reaching out to her. Um, it was due to the lack of those one-month meetings that we had this sense of unknown, like, where I was going to go. And we really needed those check-ins to say, like, can you stay at this group home or do we need to find you another placement? I think... If I had had that, um, I might not have been in quite as many harmful situations to myself. 
Yeah. I mean, group homes in and of themselves are not for kids to just be forgotten about in. They're transition placements, in my opinion. It's not appropriate for any foster kid to be put in a group home for an extended period of time because group homes don't, like, when you're in a group home, you're not having the actual relationship with the parent that you need to. Because in a group home, the people in charge, the foster parents in a group home, have so many kids to deal with and so many situations that they have to deal with. They can't connect with kids one-on-one. They can't guide you and teach you and help you grow into a person and help you heal with the amount of things they have to do, with the amount of kids they have to deal with. You don't get that like life skills training that you might get from a parent or a guardian. And those are things that you really need when you're about to age out of the system and like some group homes have a six-week rule and I surpassed that multiple times um, just due to a lack of I guess care on my DCF workers part. Yeah and it really just I think drives home the idea that unless you are in communication with your worker or the worker with the youth that it's detrimental for youth and for that kind of getting you, moving you forward. Yeah, I think a lot of foster parents have the idea that when they get a teenager, they're already going to know, like, what to do. There are that They have the idea that they're already a person, that they're already a teenager who's, who's well-versed in how to adult, how to do things by themselves, how to advocate for themselves, how to, how to human. Um, but that's really not the case. When you get a teenager in custody— a lot of the times they haven't been in a placement long enough to even create a connection with the person, with the, with the parent. They haven't had the opportunity to be guided. They haven't had the opportunity to be taught about basic life skills that a person who wasn't in foster care would already have. And it's, I, I, they need to be more prepared for what they get. And I actually have a situation where I can kind of vouch for that, like, lack of life skills. I was in a placement with another teenager who had just become a teenager she was not ready for her period um, and she didn't have anybody to really walk her through how to use basic hygiene products and in a group home there's nobody that's really wanting to sit there and talk to you about like how to use a tampon how to use a pad and I'm sure in like male group homes there are the same kind of things that they're not able to talk to you about and it's really detrimental because she didn't know how to take care of these basic hygiene needs that she would have had if she was in a placement. Yeah so if you have that that person right that you can rely on and you feel comfortable and safe with is very different than being in a group home um, and or just not making a connection with another adult. Yeah, I went to the doctors the other week, and I didn't tell my mom about it because I didn't realize I was supposed to. I hadn't had a parent for so long that I didn't know what was normal. I didn't know what I was supposed to tell her. I thought this was one of the things I just had to deal with on my own because I'm an adult now. I'm 18. I'm in college, you know, supposed to take care of myself. And when I talked to her about it, she was like, I'm your mom. You're supposed to tell me these things. It's like I have, I had no idea. Like I genuinely, like that's just such a basic thing that is that comes to instinct to kids who grow up with with their parents and it's it just wasn't there for me like I hadn't had that connection because growing up I never had that parent yeah so it's it's things that that may seem so simple right but that when you don't have that available adult it just 
isn't part of of what you're what you're going to do. So you know, kind of on that note too, um, what can either foster parents and again, I I go to the DCF workers because they are a big part of your life um, as your guardians. What can they do to help kind of foster trust so that you do have somebody to go to or that person to talk to? I mean, I think like from my experience, it's just like being really straight up, like. I've been in placements both where they have been very straight up with how long I'm going to be there. And I've been in placements where they have told me I was going to be there forever. And it ended up not being the case. And you're not going to hurt the kids' feelings if you say they're going to be there for a year or six months or whatever the case is. You just, you're going to hurt their feelings if they don't know what's happening. And all of a sudden it's, you can't be here anymore. And then it feels like something, that they did something wrong. When in reality it's just... Was, it was the plan all the time, but they didn't. They didn't know that they weren't in. They weren't in on that. We'd much rather you be honest about your expectations and your your reality of the situation, because we have enough like inconsistency and unknowns in our life that you providing us with a little bit of your truth is really important. And I think the same goes for social workers and DCF workers. The same goes for them. They, they're, in, they're pretty much in charge of your life. They're the ones who are technically are your guardians. So DCF workers kind of need to have the same mentality. Like mine was always pretty straight up with me. She told me everything that was going on, especially if I asked. And she, she was straight up. And it, that's what we need because when you're living your teenage years in foster care, like you're not dumb. We're still people. We pick up on we pick up on stuff when we we notice there's some secrets or something we're not filled in on. We're, we're still people, and we're especially good. We're especially good at reading people's moods and f- figuring stuff like that out, because that's literally what we did our entire lives with our parents. That's part of trauma. You, you become really good at reading situations, and you understand simple markers in, like, human behavior that other people might not understand because they've never had to overanalyze a situation like that. Yeah, so really being part of being part of the decision making, understanding what's going to happen in your own lives would be very very helpful and being being told ahead of time or or however much information is known, at least having that information. Yeah. I mean, if you're old enough to testify and you're old enough to make decisions like that, then you're old enough to know what's happening. You're old enough to know where you're going to be. You're old enough to know how long you're going to be somewhere. Like, if, you know, if you, if you can make your own decisions, you can know where, what's happening with your life. Yeah, That's, yeah. like, a huge part, too, of trauma is, like, not being in control and not knowing what's happening. You're also old enough to kind of, like, say, I don't, like, this placement isn't working out for me. You need to be able to have some sort of say in your situation. Yeah, and that little bit, that little information, that little ability to be able to say that is huge for us because we have zero control. Yeah, so having any control at all, right, and any say, and being listened to is also what I'm hearing. And when I think of that, again, I go to the the time spent um, both with a DCF worker and a youth in custody, really making sure to, to do at least a month to month um, and a good check-in and really hear you and listen listen to where you're at. And sometimes the month-to-month isn't the social worker's fault. 
because they're just so overworked. They have so many, they have too many cases to even, you can't even see a kid like a day because there's too many of them. And I mean, they already have so many things they have to do. They have to go to court. They have, you know, other aspects of their job. And then this required month to month, which is really important, is just what falls through the cracks. Because especially if you're somebody who doesn't cause problems because they don't need to check up on you. They're like, okay, you're good. So if you don't advocate for yourself and you don't mention that something's wrong and you, you, you don't get in trouble, then you stay in a placement where you may not be happy, where you may actually be really uncomfortable and unsafe. But because of a lot of, because of trauma, a lot of kids yeah. don't know how to speak up for themselves and they don't, they're not comfortable with that. They don't know how to do it. And they end up staying quiet and shutting down and not, and like they're just putting, they're being put in a harmful situation by the lack of those check-ins based on the overwork of our social workers. Yeah, so again, it, just feeling that safety of being able to speak up for yourself. And were there any adults um, and or youth that helped you to feel safe to speak up, that kind of gave you that that voice? Yeah, I actually had a pretty close foster friend that helped me get through some really traumatic stuff. And when my parents signed away their legal rights, she was right there by my side and let me know that like, hey, this might feel like the end of the world right now and you don't know what's going to happen, but it's really not the end of the world. This is like the opening of a new chapter. Yeah. When I met Ashley, I was I was kind of becoming a person because I had only been in custody for like a year, a little over a year at that point. And, you know, like, I wasn't really my own person before custody. And, you know, trauma has lasting effects. So I wasn't really a person for a long time. And I wasn't really my own person for a long time. And it was, like, right around that time I met Ashley that I was, like, kind of discovering who I was, what I liked, what I was doing with my life. And it was really beneficial to have somebody who could understand what I was going through and help guide me. Because she is older than me, so she she was, like, my big sister for a while. And... I was very grateful for that experience. We kind of picked up things from each other, and I kind of taught her how to use her voice and how to not let people walk all over her, and I learned how to kind of... I learned that sometimes I don't need to use my voice, that sometimes it's okay for me to sit down and shut up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you two were, were great advocates and, and kind of teachers for each other. Yeah. Nice. And you can thank that teacher back in whatever <laughs> class it was. So wonderful. That's great. What would you tell if you were to meet a, a youth coming into foster care now? What advice would you give them? It's okay to stick up for yourself. And even though you might feel like you're being really snooty or pushy or annoying, it's your life. And it's okay to be annoying and snooty and pushy about things that are really important to you. I think I would tell them to, like, really truly be themselves, to stop the trauma hiding of their true selves, like, of who they really are. Because I know that's, it's you know, you camouflage and you, you know, feel like if people actually get to know you, they're not going to like you and they're not going to want you. So I think I just tell them to, like, actually be themselves, embrace it. And those who stay are the ones who are worth it. Nice. And what about for the caregivers who might be taking in a, a foster youth for the first time. Excuse the French, but understand that sometimes <laughs> youth are real assholes and we need somebody to kind of 
put us in our place in a respectful way and show us that healthy boundaries are really good. We don't have a lot of healthy boundaries where we come from, and we need somebody to set up those boundaries and show us what it means to be a healthy, functioning human. Yeah, it's. I think so many foster parents, especially with teenagers, are so scared to give their kids rules. But rules, oh my goodness, even if they don't like them, they are so important and they will silently thank you for putting them in line, for keeping them in check, for making them be a kid instead of having to live for themselves as, you know, the only person they can count on. Because rules and curfews and chores, they suck, but that's what it means to be a kid. It's what it means to not have to be in charge of yourself. And it's so important for kids' development. I hated doing chores, but it really kind of showed me and helped guide me into what it meant to be an adult. And I silently, and I will verbally do it now, like I am thankful that I was given some sort of boundaries, even though those placements didn't work out for me. Yeah, well, because as a foster kid, you don't really know boundaries. You, like, have, you've grown up in this, like, alternate universe almost, where everything that you lived with, however messed up it was, was your normal, was your comfortable, was what you knew. And so when you are moved into this place that's all of a sudden healthy, you don't have healthy boundaries. You don't know how to be a healthy human around other healthy people who, like, it's, boundaries are so important to create healthiness, to to reinforce what it means to actually be a healthy person. I, um, I'm sitting here wishing that you two could be seen. I know this is a podcast, so it's not, it's not a possibility, but um, my time spent with you just in prepping for this um, and having seen you on a, another youth panel um, and even having this conversation is um, just you have, have really blossomed um, when I can look at you now and when I hear you say, Jaylin, about not being a person Right, and kind of coming into your own and that you both are, are now real people. It's amazing to think back to the person I was five mm-hmm. years ago. Like, I really wasn't a person. It's, I, wasn't, I wasn't who I am today. Like, I feel so comfortable with myself. It's, it's crazy how being in a healthy relationship with parents and with, which results in being in a healthy relationship with, with, with friends and then more, like, makes you create a healthy relationship with yourself. Mm-hmm. I I look back at who I was three, four years ago, and I'm not proud of the person I was, but I'm proud of what I became because of it, and I'm proud of what I made out of myself, and I wouldn't have been able to do that without a lot of those pitfalls, and I'm not at all saying that what I went through was great, but I know it could have been a lot worse. I'm proud of you. <laughs> I'm proud of you both for, for being here and doing this. Um, and maybe kind of one last piece of advice for, I guess, for if for a DCF worker. We've kind of gone through youth and caregivers. And what would you, what would a piece of advice for a DCF worker be? It's okay to admit your hands are full, but also understand that we get it. Our hands are full too, but you need to work with us and communicate a lot better than what's going on right now. Yeah, I think... I think being transparent with what is going on in that kid's life, with what with what you know, and just telling them, just being straightforward and transparent about what's going on in that kid's life because they have a right to know. And also, like, just, like, taking the time to not make it all about that because 
regardless of the fact that they're in foster care, they already know that. And that's the reality they live with every day. So on the month to months, get to know the kid, get to get to know them and just have fun with them and try try to make that one day a little bit better. Tell because, a corny joke once in a while. Yeah. Well, because DCF workers are the only consistent thing. Mm-hmm. Like sometimes a foster placement works out, but that's never a guarantee. And the DCF worker is the only constant. And that's so important to have a constant person, especially with going through the traumatic things that the traumatic thing of moving from home to home that it's and not having a consistent parent. So like (laughs) the next best thing is that DCF worker. So like trying to be consistent, trying, try to be a little goofy and try to just let them know what they can know. We might brush you off, but those corny jokes, they stick with us. And <laughs> it's like any teenager with her parent. I still remember some corny jokes that my DCF worker told me, even though I, we didn't have the greatest relationship. Those will stick with me for the rest of my life because they really got me through some really hard stuff. Do you want to share one? What's Mario's favorite kind of pants? I don't know. Dunham, dunham, dunham. <laughs> <laughs> I can see how that get you through a little bit. That's great. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time, for putting the energy, for talking about such important stuff and being vulnerable in talking about it. Thank you for giving us the opportunity. We appreciate it. Yeah. So that's a wrap for our second season of Welcome to the Field. Thank you so much, listeners. We really appreciate you. And in truth, we can't believe how many of you there actually are. So thank you. We'd also like to extend a special thank you to our guests and all of our guest hosts this season. We just want to thank you so much for your time, your ideas, and your feedback. We can't do this without you. Now don't worry, because after a short break, we'll be right back at it, planning and recording season three. So if you're listening and you have some ideas or requests, reach out to me, Cassie Gillespie. You can find me on our website, vermontcwtp.org. Welcome to the Field is produced by the Child Welfare Training Partnership and the State of Vermont. Our music was composed and performed by Brick Drop, and our sound production and engineering is brought to you by Esmond Communications and Egan Media Productions. See you next season.